Welcome to the Blinkist Podcast. It's 2017 now, but I'm still Ben Schumann Stoller. If you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world. We're talking to the authors. We're trying to get into their heads, trying to figure out what makes them tick. We're trying to take big ideas and make them personal. Today, we got an interview that I just finished up with Rachel Hills, the author of The Sex Myth. Hills is a writer and an activist based in New York right now, whose work uh, has seen appeared in many, many places. We got The Atlantic, The New Republic, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, and much more. Uh, check out thesexmyth.com for more on that or her Tumblr, rachelhills.tumblr.com. Uh, in this interview, we get into sex and Disney movies, believe it or not, especially one Lion King scene, a little bit about how people talk about sex, but most importantly, how to not let sex make you anxious. Before we get into it, real quick, last year we reached tens of thousands of listeners, and I really want to say thanks for passing this podcast on to other people who would like it. That's the only way it must have reached everybody. We didn't do any like major promotion, so that's awesome. I also realized, though, that besides like my brother-in-law and a few colleagues, I don't know much about all the people who are listening. I would really, really love to hear from you. So I'm at podcast at Blinkist.com. Send me an email with your favorite nonfiction book, and I might be able to send something back to you. Hint, hint. Oh, and uh, right, at the end of this episode, there's like a little voucher code to use Blinkist for free just to try that out. Let's see how that goes. Now then, let's roll the tape already. Let's get into the interview. I'll catch you guys in the outro. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on to the Blinkist podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's like 9 a.m. your time, and you are in the middle of a bunch of projects and work, but will somehow manage to do this, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll try to remember what I wrote about in my book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so you wrote The Sex Myth, and it got published in English in 2015, right? That's right, yes. So let's just start like right there, where in, in case someone's never read the book, what is The Sex Myth? Uh, so the sex myth is the term that I created to describe the sexual ideal in contemporary Western society. It's this idea that if you don't have a particular type of sex life, uh, if you're not having lots of sex, if you're not being adventurous, if you're not super desirable, but also if you don't fit the old criteria of being monogamous and heterosexual uh, and uh, all of those other things then we live in a society that tells you that there's something wrong with you, that your sex life makes you deviant or defective in some way. Okay. And I mean, there's, there's something interesting in there where you talk a lot about self-regulation. Yeah. So like one of the, one of the jumping off points of the book is we've come really far. Like we've come through sexual revolutions. We've come through multiple waves of feminism, but somehow we're not where we should be still. And somehow all of these gains have led to, like, in a weird way, more regulation. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly my point, that we've come a really long way, but we haven't come as far as we think we have, and we haven't come as far as many of us want us to have. And that some of the things that that we think of as being progressive or as being liberated uh, can end up serving as a set of rules all of their own. So, for example, my motivation for starting to write this book stemmed out of the fact that when I was in the first half of my 20s, especially, I was really 
quite insecure and anxious when it came to my sex life. And whereas, you know, maybe 50 years ago, a young woman might be anxious about her sex life because she's fearful of getting pregnant, which is obviously still a concern today, or because she's fearful that if she's sexually active, people might call her a slut. Uh, For me, my fear was bound up in the idea that I wasn't a good woman because I wasn't sexually active enough. This meant that I was defective in my attractiveness and defective in my liberation. And obviously that's not going to apply to everybody, but it struck me that, you know, we now have these kind of multiple sets of rules that we're trying to live up to. Like what? Like, can we go a little deeper into that? Can you give me a prompt there? (laughs) Sure. So one thing I like in the book is this idea that like we cannot possibly reach our potential without sex, according to the media or according to sort of popular culture. Sure. So we we live in a culture that tells us that sex is not just a reflection of what we value. So it's not just a reflection of our politics, our religion, uh, who we are as people, but that it's a reflection of how valuable we are. Uh, it's a reflection of how well we are succeeding in life. And so having, you know, the quote unquote right type of sex life, which is what I'm trying to deconstruct in the book, because I want everybody to be able to have the sex life that's right for them at that particular point in time. So I don't really believe there is a right way. But we're told that we need to have the right type of sex life, which means suddenly being sexually active at almost all times, Uh, not literally every moment of the day, but, you know, (laughs) not going through um, a long drought. So always having a partner or having the options of having a partner, Uh, making sex a priority within your relationship, but also as a form of kind of self-improvement and self-discovery is central to this idea of being a successful person. And this is an idea that, you know, goes all the way from childhood in really subtle ways uh, through to old age. Right. And and there's this really great example you give of the Disney heroes, of the Little Mermaid and the Beast. I don't know, like the Little Mermaid needs a kiss in order to become a real person. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting pieces of research that I found in the book. And I was living in the UK for a lot of the period that I was particularly writing the book. And at that time, there was this huge kind of media panic there around the sexualization of children. Mm-hmm. And the article that I found that I really loved talked about what I think could probably be more usefully called a process of sexual socialization. So how are children learning about the importance of sex and um, how are they learning about, you know, how they should be sexual in their future lives? And so these articles, uh, I think there were two of them actually, one of them looked at how Uh, primary school or elementary school aged girls engaged with concepts of sex. So they went into this study thinking that they were going to talk to girls about, you know, ballet classes and soccer uh, because these girls were seven or eight. But when they got into the room, all the girls wanted to talk about were their crushes. Uh, And, you know, even at age seven or eight, you know, partly these crushes were authentic. Like they probably did like these boys. 
But on the other hand, I think that they'd already learnt through, you know, whether it was watching High School Musical or hearing the way their parents talk about their relationships with boys, they'd already learnt that kind of sex was, or talking about sex in a broader sense, so not talking about penis and vagina, but talking Mm -hmm. about liking people and talking about the excitement of having a crush was this way of bonding with each other and that, you know, the proper way to interact with boys, if at age seven, eight, nine, you're interacting with them at all, because, you know, kids can be quite divided in gender at that age. Um, it happens through this lens of you can't be friends with a boy. Instead, you have to have a crush on him. Like that's mm-hmm. the only way that boys and girls can engage. And this is really interesting and, um, you know, again, geez, that word problematic for a whole number of reasons, in part because obviously not all of those little girls are going to be heterosexual when they grow mm-hmm. up. And also because it ties back into the bigger point of the sex myth as like sex all of a sudden is this major, maybe overhyped part of who they're expected to become. Yeah, and that goes back to the Disney stuff that you were talking about as well. There was another paper that I read in the process of writing the book, which looks at how even in this media that is really innocuous in lots of ways. So when in the UK they were panicking about the sexualization of children, they were worrying about Rihanna and Lady Gaga. They weren't worrying about the Lion King and the Little Mermaid because, you know, the latter are media that are clearly targeted at children. But even within that medium, well, even within that kind of media, there is still this emphasis on sex and love as being this totally transformative force. So the study talked about how, you know, I think in The Lion King, in the song Can You Feel the Love Tonight, there's this montage where Simba and Nala are like frolicking through the jungle and there's this soaring music and fireworks in the background. And it (laughs) says that this particular relationship between the two lines is really significant and magical and it's the most exciting kind of relationship you can have. Whereas with uh, Simba and his other animal friends, um, (laughs) Pumbaa and Timor, I think, their relationship is, I guess, important within the scheme of the film, but it's it's not as important as his relationship with the female line. Like it's a kind of a fun light thing rather than this monumental significant thing that we're told that romance and sex are. And I mean, so we're, we're talking a lot about kids, but to now like move forward, it becomes dangerous then as people grow older. I mean, we get to like this this dangerous impact on on the way we see ourselves and the way we we act. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that sexual content is bad. I don't think that talking about love and sex is bad. I mean, if I did, obviously I wouldn't have written a book about sex (laughs) and I wouldn't now have a career of going around and talking to people about sex and encouraging them to think openly about their sex lives. Mm -hmm. But I think that from those kind of early Disney stories to then, you know, as a teenager and this idea that you know, having sex for the first time is the moment at which you go from being a child to being an adult. And that if you are, as so many teenagers are, someone who hasn't been in a relationship or who hasn't had sex, and, you know, for for a percentage of people, you know, this continues on into adulthood, then you, you haven't properly become an adult. Those ideas are damaging. Or that if you are, you know, an older single person who, you know, by which I mean, you know, if you're a single person in their 30s or 40s or, you know, even your 20s who 
isn't currently having sex, then that means there's something missing in your life. Or if you're in a relationship where you might be still be physically intimate with your partner, uh, but you're not necessarily having sex in the way that people conventionally define it, then that means that there's something missing in your relationship. I think that that's what the problem is. This significance that we treat as a celebration, but that at the end of the day means that something that should be fun and should be pleasurable uh, ends up becoming this source of unnecessary kind of status anxiety. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and then let's go a little bit deeper into this source of anxiety and why something like that should be celebrated but isn't. Hey, it's Ben. I'm in the Blinkers Courtyard um, walking past the smokers. And you guys might know me, but I don't know you guys so well. We figured we should send out a little survey to learn more about you guys. That way, hopefully, be able to make stuff more like what you want. Or at least know what we want that you want. We're going to have to cut this part. <laughs> so here's what I did. I made a survey. I put a link under this episode on SoundCloud. There's eight questions. It will only take three minutes. And we're hoping that after the survey, we'll have a better idea of who these thousands of people are who are actually listening to the Blinkist podcast. And if you are really enterprising, take a screenshot of the final page after you hit submit and email it to me at podcast at Blinkist.com and I'll send you something in return. Either way, it'd be really cool to hear from you guys. Okay, let's get back to this interview with Rachel Hills. Welcome back. I'm still here with Rachel Hills and um, you started talking about how sex, which should be should be a source of celebration, like becomes a source of anxiety. And I guess there's a couple of directions we can go from your work there. One is this amazing fact of young men taking Viagra, which I think is, which I was like pretty shocked by when I read. Um, that's first of all. And second of all, the sex myth to me is an important way to understand like something that we can improve about ourselves. Like it's a way to make our lives better. If we understand how the sex myth is is messing with us, we can somehow overcome it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is a lot tied up in the, that question. Is there a specific thing that I can explore? Yeah, sorry. Um, um, that was that was quite broad. That was like, I like your book. That was I like, like <laughs> in the next 30 minutes of conversation. So how about this? You have this great quote that says, you are not your sex life. Yes. You say, Cast off the stories and the symbolism and let yourself be. And I guess my question is, how, how do you do that? I mean, how, how are you supposed to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think firstly, that, that section of my book where I say you will know your sex life is probably the section above all others that really gets to the root of what the sex myth is. So I said at the beginning that that I use the sex myth to describe this pervasive sexual ideal in our culture. But the truth is, as you would know as someone who's read the book, the sex myth it, the sex myth runs much deeper than that. It's this it's the way in which sex is regulated in our culture, the way in which we're taught that how we engage with sex is a reflection of who we are and what and how we're valued, uh, which runs much deeper than the ideal itself. And it's that idea that we are what we do when it comes 
to our sex lives that makes those ideals, whether, whether, whether the ideals in our community are don't have sex until you're married or whether the ideal is make sure you sleep around a lot in your twenties because you need to appreciate your freedom while it lasts. Mm-hmm. The, this, the sex myth is this kind of underlying force that makes those ideals so pervasive and so impactful upon us. And so Whereas I think a lot of the time, if we're talking about sexual freedom, we're like, how do we, how do we change that ideal so that it's okay for people to be attracted to people of the same gender as well as of the opposite gender? Or how do we change that ideal so that women are allowed to enjoy sex as much as men are? I think the real question is, how do we make it so that sex is not this core, this kind of key area of anxiety? So how do we break this idea of the sex myth? And as you say, that that can be easier said than done. I think that the first element, uh, and this is why I chose to write a book about it, I think mm-hmm. that if you're trying to deal with these kind of large cultural constructs, the first step to dealing with them is to understand them. So uh, the reason I wrote this book was to kind of lay out, well, how does this, how does this system of regulation work and how is it impacting us in our everyday lives? Because mm-hmm. I know that for me as a writer and a reader, uh, seeing how my experiences connect with other people's and connect with historical and cultural trends is something that is really helpful for me. I think the second thing that we can do in our own lives is stop trying to so closely align ourselves with the ideal. So I think that often when people talk about sexuality, we're talking about it in a kind of abstract way. So we're not really revealing what's happening in our own lives. Instead, people are more like, ho, 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 sex. Uh, Not necessarily because they're making a joke about it, but they might joke. I've had friends say, I hate using condoms. And yet I know that these friends haven't had sex in a number of years. So even if they hate using condoms, it's not like it's a regular problem that they're facing. Mm -hmm. Or um, they might say, you know, I had my last hookup when I last slept with somebody, I did this. Uh, So we're, we're trying to show that we are people who are having these successful sex lives. And I think that a really good way that we can break the sex myth and break the hold that these ideals have on ourselves and other people is is just to be a little bit more honest when we're talking about sex with others, to not posture so much and to admit the kind of gray areas and the vulnerabilities. That's really interesting, the honesty thing. When I, when I spoke with uh, some friends about the book, I said I was going to interview this week, uh, they were really interested. They wanted me to ask you about methods to discern like the the authenticity of desire. That's mm. kind of a complicated thing. But because I, I was explaining- The authenticity how, of their own desire? Yeah, one's own desire. Because one thing you say is yeah. like, in a way, don't worry about it. You do you. Like, mm-hmm. don't, let, don't let the media or something decide how you want to live out your sex life. Like, you do you. And then the question was, yeah, but if we're being controlled or, or we're, I don't want to make it a conspiracy, but we're, yeah. <laughs> but we're definitely influenced by all the media around us and the perceptions of people around us and the way, like you say, people talk about sex. Then how can we say, this is what I actually want and therefore I should go after it and, you know, in an authentic and honest way versus saying, oh, this is something that seems like maybe it was imposed on me. Yeah, what methods, what methods are there to discern if that desire is real or not? 
And that's a great question. How do you do you if you don't know what doing you looks like? And I think that it's something that we all face and in so many areas of our lives. So it's something I thought about a lot. And, uh, you know, I guess as someone with a background in sociology, you know, I recognize that our desires, you know, quote unquote, authentic or otherwise are always influenced by the stories that we're told about, you know, what life is and how it should be. So it's really impossible to separate what you want from what you're told. But I also think that if we kind of pay attention to our kind of gut, bodily and emotional reactions to ideas or situations, we can get a closer clue to what it is that we want. So I I think of these things as falling into kind of three different categories. So you have some things that, you know, our cult tells you that you should want that really align with you and make you feel really good. Um, And, you know, you can't tell if you want those things because you've been told that they'll make you feel good or because um, they because they would make you feel good regardless. Mm -hmm. But if if it's something that that does a lot that feels like it aligns with you, then it's not necessarily a problem that the original idea came from elsewhere. Um, then you have things that you're told that you should be doing, but that just don't actually sit well with you, uh, that you kind of viscerally kind of bristle up against. And so I think that if you're hearing that you should do something or you're hearing that, you know, in order to be a successful person, you need to make X amount of money or you need to get married or you need to have kids or you need to have sex at least three times a week but this is something that's producing a kind of bad feeling in you, then you know that on an authentic level, it's probably something that you don't really want. And then there are some things that you want, but that you're told that you shouldn't want, but you want them so much and so authentically that you know that that's a real thing. So I guess what I'm saying is that the areas we should really worry about are the areas in which we are really feeling a kind of visceral disalignment. So the second option. Yeah, exactly. And and those and those are the ones that we should consciously take actions to deny. Well, I think th- I think the thing is, you know, I interviewed a couple of hundred people while I'm in the process of writing this book, and a, and most of the people that I interviewed don't go didn't go around doing things that they really didn't want to do. So that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that, at least in contemporary kind of Western society, people were told they should be living a certain type of sex life. So then they went out and, you know, did that so that they could conform. The issue was that in more cases they did not conform and then they carried around the shame and anxiety around it. And it's the shame and the anxiety that is so much more difficult to combat uh, than the you know the doing or the not doing wow okay i like that and i think that a lot of the breaking down of that shame and anxiety can come from hearing other people's stories and sharing your own stories with other people sharing the parts of you that are so much more complicated 
especially if they're honest about the way they're talking and not saying, oh, I hate doing the walk of shame, even though maybe <laughs> they never have. Yeah, that's something I joke about in, uh, in one of the chapters of the book. I talk about a conversation I had with a friend where we were talking about this concept, uh, the walk of shame, and I took this kind of typical feminist line, and I'm like, why do they even call it the walk of shame anyway? They should call it the stride of pride. <laughs> I've always been proud when I've done it. And, you know, on an intellectual level, I believe that's true. We shouldn't call it a walk of shame if someone's walking home after having sex. But, you mm -hmm. know, I think I had had like one walk of shame in my life. So it's not like it was this regular <laughs> experience that I was having. If you could have that conversation again, would you not say that? Or would you have just been, would you like have at the end added a, like a postscript of like, oh, even though I've really only done that like a couple of times or once or never? Well, I did add a postscript at the time. Okay. So I don't know that I would have said it differently because maybe being someone who makes silly statements and conversations with friends is something that is authentic to who I am to make that yeah, sort of yeah. statement. And then it's also authentic to who I am to call myself out on that immediately. Yeah. And uh, to point that out. Cool. But yeah, I think that even though I'm a theory person, so I'm fascinated by, you know, studies and how society works, I think that a lot of what people who have read and loved the book get out of it is reading so many other people talking honestly and anonymously about their sex lives in the kinds of conversations you normally only get to have with your closest friends. And I think that that can create an enormous sense of relief in other people. Because even if the conversations that you're having about sex in real life are still mostly performative, you get this kind of peek behind the curtain. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy also the sort of tone, the perspective of the book is on a level, even though you cite academic things, you cite, I mean, Foucault, you cite, you know, you get into the philosophy, you get into media research and stuff, but it feels like, yeah, you're hearing from other people, you're on like a conversational level, and it makes it so much easier to to relate to this idea of of yeah finding something authentic, you know, questioning the things that you're doing that maybe you don't want to do or things that you could be doing that you're not doing, which I think is really I think is really special. And I mean, we're gonna run out of time, so I want I want you to um, have the chance to talk about how you're bringing this book forwards and outside even of the book medium. You said you're doing a play. Yeah. So since the book came out in 2015, I spent a lot of my time going around to university campuses and activist groups and, uh, you know, public lectures and things like that, talking about it. And um, quite, quite organically out of that, one of the people I met approached me with the idea of turning the sex myth into a play. So it's kind of like the vagina monologues in the sense that performers tell their own authentic stories when it comes to sex, uh, as well as building upon ideas in the book uh, in order to you know explore these broader themes that we've been talking about in the interview. And so so we're, we're building that out at the moment, both in the sense of putting on a show in New York later in the summer, and then we've also created a toolkit so that people can use this process we've created and the book itself as a way to create their own versions of the production. So if you go to www.thesexmyth.com, uh, you can learn more about that and get involved in that project. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for taking the time relatively early in the morning to do this. And uh, or at least first thing when like, you know, the voice isn't warmed up, it's like everything was perfect. So thank you very much. Great. And, thank you so uh, much, Ben. Yeah. And hopefully we can do this. Maybe we'll check in again once the play's up. Yeah, that would be great. Cool. 
Thanks for listening to the Blinkist podcast. This episode was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino, who can play the Lion King soundtrack on the steel drums. Remember, email me your favorite nonfiction book at podcast at Blinkist.com. There might be something in it for you. Oh, and lest I forget, you can use voucher code SEXMYTH, one word, S-E-X-M-Y-T-H, on Blinkist.com slash friends to get a few free weeks of Blinkist. So try that. We have such good podcasts planned for the next few weeks. Um, Stay tuned. We got Adam Alter, author of Drunk Tank Pink and the forthcoming Irresistible. That seems like it's going to be big. And Daniel Schachter, author of The Seven Sins of Memory, uh, runs his own Harvard Memory Lab. It's going to be also a really, really interesting interview. Big stuff. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out.